and, uh, and I've preached from those Palm Sunday uh, scriptures. All the different, all four Gospels have renditions of the triumphal entry, Zechariah 9.9, 9, uh, very clearly a proclamation of the, uh, that entry that would, would eventually come. Uh, and I was tempted to go there this morning, uh, but we're not going to. We're going to jump right back in our study of Romans 9. Some people may not understand that, but I think in the right context we need to understand something that uh, not only the context of Jesus coming in Jerusalem, but the context in which we find ourselves uh, today, and that is, again, as we said before, that God is absolutely sovereign, not in just some things, but in absolutely everything. The thing that Paul has been driving home over and over again through the book of Romans is this, is that, that all people have sinned and fallen short of God's glory, that, we all, that, that we've all dug ourselves into a deep hole that we cannot possibly get ourselves out of or even come close to. That means this, and we understand this, that the, 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 the real issue at hand here is this, is perfect righteousness. Perfect righteousness is what God requires, and he can set that standard. He can set the standard wherever he wants to, but to, to be true and, and, and complete in his understanding of all things is not something that he just decided arbitrarily. It's something that his very character demands. That he could not settle for anything less than absolute perfect righteousness. But we know, as Paul has argued here through the book of Romans, that we don't have that. And it's not that some of us have it and other people don't have it. It's that none of us have it. None of us come close. And there are people that I know that I would say live more righteous lives than other people. But at the same time, the Bible declares over and over again that we have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory, that, that none of us has that righteousness. None of us has really an inkling of the righteousness that God demands to be part of his eternal kingdom. Uh, I said before that I really believe that there are many people in the church today that will gather and they will, they will study this passage and come to wrong conclusions. And what I would say is this, is that wrong conclusion is this. It's just to remember that Scripture interprets Scripture. Everything that we study in Scripture, we have to let the rest of Scripture define its meaning for us. Which means this, we can't take these Palm Sunday passages and just settle on them all by themselves as if they're islands completely unaffected by everything around them. Then in other words, to come to a rightful understanding of things like Palm Sunday, we need to consider everything the Bible says and how do those things reflect upon what's going on when Jesus comes into Jerusalem on that particular Sunday. So what I'm telling you is this, is to get a rightful understanding of, of Zechariah 9.9 9 and all those passages in the Gospels about Palm Sunday, you have to also run it through the filter of Romans 8 and 9. And if you don't do that, you're going to come up with a wrong understanding of an idea of what is going on as Jesus comes into Jerusalem on that very special Sunday. And I think this is the biggest error of the church today. Because I would say to you, 
that the majority of believers have a wrong understanding of what Jesus, why Jesus came and what he actually accomplished. I would say to you, the vast majority of believers today believe that Jesus came into Jerusalem and did all that he did in his life and everything else to provide a means of salvation for anybody and everybody that of their own free will would choose to accept it. That understanding, my friends, does not do justice to Romans 8 and 9. In other words, if you put Romans 8 and 9 in the whole picture, you cannot possibly come to that conclusion. The conclusion you have to come to is this, and that is when Jesus came into Jerusalem, he did everything he did, not only then, but the fact he was born into this world and everything he did in his life had one purpose. And that was to save a particular group of people. It was not to make salvation equally and equitably be available to everybody. What Romans 8 and 9 say is this, is God's been sending aside a people special unto himself from the very beginning of time. And that's what Jesus was doing when he came into Jerusalem that day. Doing for that particular group of people what had to be do done in order that they would have completeness in their salvation. In other words, when he came into Jerusalem that day, he wasn't just thinking about the masses. He was thinking about Bruce. He was thinking about Lauren. He was thinking about Nancy and Riley. We were on his mind. And his thoughts of us and his love for us is what continued to compel him to do what he did. He knows what's going to happen. He knows exactly how the week is going to transpire. He's like super-duper famous today, but by the end of the week, the vast majority of people are going to consider him to be the scum of the earth. And that's just a measure of the fallenness of mankind's heart. And let me just say, if, that's not, if you're not there with those people, the only reason you're not there with those people is because God has done something in you. He doesn't do for everybody. He's quickened your heart to the truth. Let me just read these words from Romans chapter 9. We're just going to be looking at verses 14 through 18. What shall we say then? See, this, this is another one of those rhetorical questions that Paul was anticipating as he goes through. He's, 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 you know, let me just say something. That Paul is teaching here in Romans 8 and 9 probably some of the most difficult stuff in all of Scripture. It's not easy stuff. It's deep stuff. It's heavy stuff. It's not stuff that anyone needs to come to a conclusion over until they actually study it in detail. But as Paul has gone through Romans, you've seen this. You've seen him over and over again anticipating rhetorical questions or wrongful answers that he knows that people will come to based upon what he's just said. He's doing that again in verse 14 in Romans 9. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? And as he does every time, may it never be. May anyone never, ever 
conclude that based upon what I have said, that there is injustice with God. See, this is the main argument that people use today against what we call the Reformed theology, or Calvinism sometimes. They will say this, that if you believe what you believe, then you believe that God is unjust. In other words, they're telling us that we're making that error. But what does Paul say? Paul says, may it never be. God is just. God is always just. God has never done anything unjust ever, 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 or ever will he. Sometimes at the expense of his justice, we try to make things sound more palatable to people. But may it never be that anyone would conclude from what we're reading here in Romans 8 and 9 that, is, that, that, that God is unjust because he's done what he's done and he's done things the way he's done them. May it never be, but what I'm telling you, there's a large percentage of people in the church today, that's exactly what they're doing. Because this is the argument you'll get from the Armenian perspective, and that is this, is God wouldn't do that because that would be unjust. In other words, they're coming to the very conclusion that Paul is telling them, don't come to that conclusion. May it never be that there, there is, it's impossible for God to be unjust, period. It goes against his very character. So, so no one can conclude what we've studied here in Romans 8 and 9. That God has been sending aside for himself a chosen people. A chosen people. People set apart by God. Ever since the Garden of Eden. Not something new. He's been doing it along, all along. And what I just want to challenge us with this morning is to understand this. What Jesus did, he did for them. Not for all of mankind. He did specifically and particularly for those people that God had set apart from the very beginning. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion upon whom I have compassion. In other words, no one can force God to be merciful or compassionate. In other words, mercy and compassion is nothing that anyone can, can demand of God because if you consider everything else Paul has taught up to this point, that is this, no person that has ever lived, not any of us, not anyone that's ever lived other than Jesus is deserving of the mercy and compassion of God. Period. Nobody. So under the conditions, we could have one or two things. Either that, either everyone's going to hell. Everybody's going to hell, because that's what we've earned for ourselves. Every single one of us. Or God could save everybody, right? 
Now, Jesus' atonement was sufficient to pay for the sins of every person that's ever lived and breathed. He could have done that. But for his own reasons, he chose not to do that. Very strong language here. If you go back to verse 13, matter-of-factly, and this is right from Malachi chapter 1, verse 2, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. And if you know anything about the life of Jacob, if you studied that in, in, in the book of Genesis and other places, you know that Jacob was a deceitful scoundrel. He wasn't this perfectly righteous person that, that, that earned God's favor because he was just exceptional and bright and stood out amongst everybody else. As we said last week, if you compare him to what we know about Esau, it appears as though Esau was probably the more moral of the two, the more righteous of the two. Jacob was a scoundrel. But God determined to use Jacob for a special purpose, and in the meantime, he passed over Esau. He passed over Esau, who was the firstborn, who according to the laws and traditions should have been the firstborn that got most of the privileges and rights. See, God is... He's free to do what he wants, when he wants to do, what he wants to do with whoever he wants to do it with. I tell you, the biggest mystery for every one of us is this. It's not so much why, why Jacob, but it ought to be why me. Seriously, why has God chosen to love me? to set me apart, to save me from myself. He doesn't do it for everybody. Paul uses an example from Scripture here again to drive home his point. The first of all, he says that it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Period. It's all determined by the will of God, not the will of man. Not corporately and not individually. The scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up. So why did God raise up Pharaoh to use him in the way that he did? Exactly. For this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. There are a lot of questions that we can find answers to if we look in Scripture for them. There's some things we just don't have absolute, complete answers to.
But this is an example. One of the questions that comes into this picture is this. Uh, Does God use people like Pharaoh actively or passively? In other words, we're told that he hardened Pharaoh's heart. If if you look at the the passages in Exodus that have to do with Moses' interaction with Pharaoh and, and all of that, what you'll find is there's a number of things that are said there. Sometimes it is said that, uh, that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Other times it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. So that brings to issue is, does God actively or passively? In other words, did God just leave Pharaoh in his sin and allow his sinful nature to drive him to do all of this? Or did God actively enter into the picture Well, the truth is this, is there's enough sin in every one of us to do just about anything if God lets loose of the reins. The fact of the matter is God has had the reins uh, on sin ever since the Garden of Eden. If he hadn't, we never would have made it out of the Garden of Eden. Adam or Eve would have murdered one or the other one and the other one or whatever, and, and then the other one would have died in time. We never would have made it out of the Garden of Eden if God was not restraining sin, even in Adam and Eve, from the very beginning. Pharaoh was bad, but there were limits to what Pharaoh did. There's a sense in which you can say that that, that even in the case of Pharaoh, there was a restraining power of God at work in him because he was not as bad as he possibly could be. He could have done a lot worse than he did. The fact of the matter is this, is God has reins on the sin in us. And if he loosens up on those reins, let me tell you, you're capable of doing things you never would think for a minute you would ever do. It's true of every one of us. Hallelujah for the restraining power of God when it comes to sin. And and again, the world wouldn't even be here. We wouldn't even be concern we wouldn't have even been thought of if God had not been doing that through the entire history of mankind so when God has a purpose for people uh, that most people will look upon as a good purpose the only thing he has to do is loosen the reins a little bit so there's a, you know, when, it, when it talks about Pharaoh hardening his own heart, there's a sense in which it's saying here that the sin in Pharaoh hardened his heart even more. His own nature did it. But for that to happen, the only thing God has to do is loosen the reins a little bit. So, you know, ultimately, it is God doing it. He's doing it passively rather than actively. But ultimately, it doesn't matter whether it's passive or active. Because it actually accomplishes his discernment when. Uh, it drives me crazy because I think very often people have this idea that God is answerable to us. That he has to explain to us everything he does and why he does it and his intentions here, there, and yonder, and this, that, and the other. And the reality is this is the only thing uh, that he's, he's not required to do any of that. He freely does it. Uh, Sometimes, and sometimes he doesn't. 
I said this before the last couple of weeks, and that is one of the things that bothers me so much about what's going on right now is this, is I don't hear anybody talking about the sovereignty of God in all of this, this coronavirus business. As if some people, even church people, believe this is something that's kind of maybe caught him off guard. He, you know, kind of closed his eyes for a few minutes and just stuck in the back door and he didn't realize what was going on and, uh, and this, that, and the other. Now he's scrambling to come up with some way to kind of figure out how to end all of it. If that's your picture of God, let me tell you something. You need to read your Bible a lot more because that is it's not the picture of an almighty and sovereign God. This virus is here because he sent it. Now, some people don't like for me to say that. But the truth of the matter is this. That's the truth. That is Bible truth. That God is foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. He has sent this virus into the world to accomplish his will and purpose. And we understand this. That one of the things that's going to come out on the other end of it is there are going to be people who believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior who did not when this started. It's going to drive them to the place they need to be to come to faith. God doing that. There are other people that, uh, that are already denying God that are going to deny God even more because God, in their eyes, God would not do something like this. Either God is God or God's not God. Lord and I have been accused a couple of times just recently of not really giving much credence to a lot of what's going on right now. Well, like I said, we are being very careful. Uh, when it comes to certain things. But let me tell you something. I am not panicky. I'm not upset. I am not anything. Because I know that God is in control. He has been all along. Things like this are not things that get thrown in the mix apart from his will. This is according to the will of God that this virus is here. And we understand this. There's a sense in which it is some degree a judgment on the sinfulness of man. It is. Does it mean that people are die from it, are worse people than other people? It doesn't mean that at all. Please don't come to that conclusion. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about here is every catastrophe, every this, that, and the other that comes upon mankind, whether it be hurricanes, earthquakes, coronaviruses, or whatever. They, in a sense, are God's acts of judgment upon the sinfulness of the world, in part. And we know, ultimately, they're leading up to that final judgment. When stuff like the coronavirus, when, 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 when things begin to, 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 to come to what we would call the end of time, things are getting a lot worse. There are a lot of Christians today who believe that there's this thing called the Great Tribulation coming, and before that, that, that God is going to whisk all, all, rapture all of the saints out of the world. 
before these terrible things fall upon the earth. And Jesus talks about there's going to be earthquakes and this, that, and the other coming. And he doesn't mention coronaviruses. You could probably slip that in there too. You know, this is not a unique thing in history. There have been these kinds of diseases that have come along all through the history of mankind that sometimes have wiped out massive populations. Far more than this particular thing looks like it's going to do. Just remember this, that mercy cannot be demanded. In other words, no one ever has any ground to demand mercy. No one has any ground to demand that God have mercy on all people, period. Because mercy demanded is not mercy. Mercy is something that's got to be freely granted, freely given, undeserved. Mercy always comes upon the undeserving. Let me just tell you, until Jesus came into your heart, your heart was hardened toward him. Your heart was hardened toward God. You would look upon something like this, and you would conclude what so many people will, and that is that God is just a bad thing. He's all about wrath, and he's all about hatred, and he's all about all those bad things. But you understand that that's the only place where mercy can come into the picture. In other words, things like the coronavirus are the picture for a lot of reasons. And one of those is because it's judgment, God's judgment on the sinfulness of mankind to some degree. But it also is an opportunity for God to show mercy as well. And that's what we need to focus on, I think. There may be a huge percentage of the population of the world that dies from this, but all of the world will not die from this. That's the mercy of God. Because we understand that apart from Jesus Christ, that's what we all have earned. That's what we all deserve. There was a sense in which God was merciful to Pharaoh. I don't see that. But the truth of the matter is he could, <laughs> he could have done a whole lot worse he brought all those plagues upon Egypt and, you know, the, the, and came to the culmination of, uh, of the firstborn of every family dying. Firstborn son of every family dying. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the grief and heartache that really, you know, was going on? You know, the cry that went out into the land on that, that day that the angel of death came and took the lives of all those firstborn sons and all those families. The grief and heartache. But God was making a distinction between those who were his and those who were not.
Now I would say to you, in some sense, this same thing will happen through this crisis we're in right now. It doesn't look like everyone on the earth is going to die from it. Therefore, God is merciful. It even appears as though only a small percentage, less than 1% of the people on the planet will probably die from it. Why? Because God is merciful. And just remember when Christ comes back, if you're one of his, if you die between now and then, then your spirit will go to heaven and be with him, awaiting the time when he comes back. And when he comes back, you'll come, your spirit will come with him. Your body will be resurrected, a perfect body, a, a sinless body. And you will be with him. Or if you're living during that time when Christ comes back, the Bible is pretty clear, and that is there will be believers living in the world at the time of the second coming. And they will join him in the air. They will be raptured. Not before he comes, but when he does come. So what should all of this play out as we live our lives in this world? Well, one of the things I just want to encourage you is this. Is don't begin believing that there's something in you that makes you very special, that sets you apart from other people uh, other than the fact that God is coming to you. He sent his Holy Spirit to come to you, to change you, to indwell you. He did all that. You didn't do it. You didn't breathe your dead self back to life again. He did that. People will charge us. People, you know, they look upon, there are, there are a lot of people that reform, they hate, they absolutely abhor reformed theology. There's a lot of them in, in the church today that just need Calvinism, you know, whatever. But what I'm telling you is I've studied the Bible. I've read the Bible I don't know how many times. And what happens with me every time I read it is more and more. I'm just convicted this is reality. This is the truth. This is what the Scripture's saying. You can't get away from it. You can't wiggle around it. That Jesus, when he came, he came with the intended purpose And that was to save his chosen people from their sins. Those who would come to know him as Lord and Savior. Those who understand. Who know what real mercy is. Who know themselves well enough to know I didn't earn it. I didn't deserve it. Who look upon themselves every day and think to themselves, 
Why me? Why me, Lord? Why have you done for me all that you've done? It's not a position of arrogance or pride, which is what some people would, would charge us with. And you're just arrogant and you're private because you believe that stuff. Now, that's not to say that that doesn't evoke that response in some people, but it should not be the normal response. The normal response should be brokenness, not pride. Joy. Humility. Knowing that the only thing that makes you different is God acting in you in a way that he's not compelled, he's not required to act in all people. And just remember as we are celebrating Palm Sunday today and all of the events of the week that Jesus did in fact come on a mission and that you're part of that mission. He didn't come to make salvation available to you if you so chose to do it. He came to guarantee your salvation to save you specifically and particularly. And he would settle for nothing less. He talked a lot about assurance of salvation over the last few weeks. Let me tell you, that's the only place there's assurance. If you understand that God has saved you, I haven't saved myself, I haven't, I haven't, there's no sense in which I've saved myself at all. God's done it. Yes, I have faith to believe, but I have faith to believe because he gave me the faith to believe. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It's a gift of God. Given as a gift. Not bought. Not earned. Not deserved. How does that make you feel? Prideful? Puffed up, arrogant, thinking you're better than other people? No. But it gives you something you would not have otherwise, and that is real assurance of your salvation. Understanding it's, it's all dependent upon me. He's done everything for me. Yes, I have faith, but I have faith because he enabled my dead heart to have faith. He breathed life into that which was dead to him. So who deserves the credit for our salvation? I tell you, I don't deserve any credit at all. None. Not one inkling. You know why? You know, you know, very often we say, well, there's not really answers in the Bible for why God does what he does. Let me tell you something. As far as I'm concerned, there is an answer to this question. Why does he save people the way that he, he does? Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. 
By grace we've been saved through faith. And that is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Why? That no one can boast. He knew this, that if he saved us in some other way that we contributed to, and we we were kind of the center point, that we would be out bragging and boasting and all proud and puffed up about it. But he saved us the way he did to humble us. We don't have anything to brag about except one thing. We have a mighty and loving God who deserves all the credit. You just remember this. On Palm Sunday, Jesus was coming for you.